I'm delighted and happy to speak to you today. I'm Steve Main, and I'm the music director at Piedmont Church. And uh, ordinarily, you hear me playing the organ or playing the piano, but every now and then, they let me out of my box, and I get to take the old theology degree out for a spin and see if it still works. Anyway, today I thought I would preach on the 23rd Psalm as my text. And that's proven to be both an interesting or a dangerous choice ever since I made it. Because the 23rd Psalm is probably in the top 10, maybe even the top three of all-time favorite Bible verses. And more importantly, from a preaching perspective, it's one that lots of people know really well. Maybe some of us had to learn it in Sunday school. I know I did. It's read at funerals and memorials. And of course, here at Piedmont, we say it together after every communion service. So it's got a lot of special kinds of resonances for most people. For a lot of people, Psalm 23 is a device of prayer. It's used as a way of meditating and quieting the mind. So it's a good choice to preach on, but it's a little bit of a dangerous choice as well. Partly because of that, I realized this week that probably the last thing we need after 3,000 years is another sort of feeble attempt at a sermon on Psalm 23. One of the reasons is because it kind of is a sermon. It sort of preaches itself. It doesn't need a whole lot of help from me. And so for that reason, I thought rather than have me do the usual thing where I sort of read the scriptures at you and then tell you what I think they mean, I thought we'd do something a little different and read it together, which is what we tend to do here at Piedmont anyway. After we read it, I'd then like to take a walk through it, verse by verse, and rather than me preaching, let Psalm 23 do the preaching to us. So now let's read Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. So what's this psalm about? Well, of course, the very first image is all about a shepherd and sheep. Now, first off, let me issue a disclaimer. They say you're supposed to preach on things that you know about, but I just want you to know that I know zero about this topic. I know absolutely nothing about shepherds. Now, depending on where you were raised, you may have actually encountered shepherds, maybe on a farm or a ranch. So you may understand more about it than I do. I was born and raised in New York City, and I've never met a shepherd in my entire life, not one. In fact, I didn't even meet a sheep until I was eight years old when I went to a petting zoo and had the daylight scared out of me by an absolutely enormous and very friendly you. Naturally, not knowing anything about a topic won't deter me from preaching about it to you. And so I just did the coward's next best thing and did some research on the internet. And I found out all kinds of things about sheep and shepherds that I didn't know. First of all, it turns out that in the ancient world, I didn't know this, sheep were not raised principally for meat. They were raised for wool. And so, as a result, it was the shepherd's job to nourish and look after the sheep and to lead them into pasture, to keep them happy and healthy as long as possible for many, many years. The more years, the more wool you can get from them. And in fact, because sheep do live a long time, I didn't know that either, it was a custom in the ancient world, and apparently it still is, to give each sheep a name, which they didn't necessarily do with other animals. The shepherd knew his sheep by name individually, and so 
it became his sacred task to sort of see them through the cycle of life under his care. That's the first thing I learned about sheep. The second thing I learned about sheep is that, yes, it's true, they're really dumb. I didn't quite realize how dumb. They are herding animals, but not in the way that you can have a herd of horses, which sort of sense where to go and what to do. Apparently, sheep are herding animals because they're not smart enough to do anything else. A day in the life of a sheep means following your nose from one green munchful of grass to the next. And as a result, they frequently stray off the path and they can end up in brambles and briars. And if they get too far away, they can be picked off by predators. And so the shepherd has a lot of work to do, constantly sort of making sure that the sheep are in the same place and they're going to get from point A, where they start in the beginning of the day, into the valley where they feed and then come home safely at night. So for the original listeners to this psalm, the people who would have prayed it or sung it, because remember, the book of Psalms is a hymn book. The opening verse of this psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, is about immediately establishing a relationship between the shepherd and sheep, or God and us. It was a relationship that they would have understood really well. It's not really about arguing for some finer point of theology here. Instead, it's sort of laying out the way that God and we work together. So the first two verses of this psalm are about establishing that relationship, and then what comes next? He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. What does it mean to restore something? Well, we restore old paintings, objects of art. I know some of you have restored old houses, and so you know it's a long labor of love, which takes commitment and time and dollars. And of course, the hidden assumption always in any restoration project is that it's going to be better to restore something than it would be just to throw it away and start all over again, or paint it over, or let it fall apart, or just forget about it and buy something new. There's an understanding and love of the inherent value of a thing. The idea with rest restoration is that you want to take this thing and you want to peel away the dirt and the grime that's sort of accumulated over the years and maybe has come to obscure the original meaning or the original beauty or the original function of the thing. And then once you've done that, you want to restore it to its rightful place. The psalm tells us where that restoration moment happens. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. For many, many people over thousands of years, this opening of Psalm 23 has led to a kind of meditation practice. And in this frantic, anxious world we're living in, all of us know what it means to yearn for the green pastures and the still waters where maybe we can rest. So where do we get that feeling of restoration today? Where do we find those still waters? It's not just about finally relaxing because we've crossed off all the items from the to-do list or when we finally have got the calendar cleared. We all fall into that trap of thinking that, or at least I do. Instead, those still waters are opening and running beneath us right here, right now. You know, the ancient church theologians used to say that God was closer to you than your own breath. God's presence is found right here between each breath, between the thoughts that we think, between the notes that my singers sang earlier. God is always present. Those moments of stillness, they're only here. They're not tomorrow. When tomorrow comes, it'll be today. It'll be right now. They're not yesterday. That's past. They're right here, right now, which is the only place God has ever lived. And it's the only place that you've ever truly lived, right here and now. God is eternal. He lives only here and now, and that's how we know the part of us that's eternal, because that's the only place that we can come and meet God. 
right here and now. So the upshot of all this means that later this week when maybe you're in the grocery store and you're in the checkout line trying not to itch your mask and trying not to look in the shopping cart of the fellow ahead of you to see if he hoarded all the toilet paper and your mind is just wandering or whatever, that's what mine usually does, instead you can bring yourself back right here to these still waters, right here. Just bring yourself back constantly. Bring yourself back to what's really happening as opposed to all of the things that crowd out the stillness that God is always offering to us. Let's continue down this path where the psalm leads. It says, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. It's interesting, a couple things. Up until this moment in the psalm, the writer has been speaking in the third person about God. He leadeth me. He maketh me to lie down. But now, did you notice the pivot? The grammar changes, and the Lord is referred to in the second person. For thou art with me, thy rod and staff, they comfort me. And that makes sense, because in those moments when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, those are the moments that God feels the most near to us. Not as that God out there, but the God right here in front of us. You've probably known people, I have, who've gone through tough periods in life, and what they'll sometimes tell you is, you know what, that was an awful time and I'm glad it's over, but I never felt closer to God than when I was in that time, than when I was in that valley of the shadow of death. And did you notice? The psalm doesn't say, even though I walk through the valley of death. It doesn't say the valley of death. It says the valley of the shadow of death. There's a huge difference in that word, right? I mean, as far as death itself, I mean, it's manageable. It's really not a problem, death itself. It's actually deeply simple. It takes care of itself. It's a natural process. The grieving is natural. All the things we associate with death, they're just what they are. They're not really a problem and they're not really a mistake. But the shadow of death, now that's something entirely different. The shadow of death, that we all know very, very well. That's all the things that we fear. Those are the things that clutch at your soul. One evening this past week, while I was watching the evening news on television and trying to digest my dinner in peace, I found myself counting all the things the nice newscaster was telling me that I should be frightened of. What an incredible list. Politics, pandemics, economic collapse, murder hornets, an endless catalog of stuff that I was supposed to be frightened of. That's the shadow of death. You know, We're probably only the third or fourth generation in human history where instead of just worrying and fearing the few things that happened in our own little nearby valley, we now have to fear things that happen half a globe away. I wonder if we're built for this, to be cataloging all that collection of human anxiety, especially when we can't do all that much about a lot of it, so it just sort of sits there for us. That's the shadow of death. Psalm 23 speaks of God leading you through the valley of the shadow of death. When the shadow is there frightening you and you're starting to frighten yourself, that's where God's promise is felt. And what is that promise? For thou art with me. The foundation of the promise is just presence, God's presence. That gentle pressure, that quiet beckoning you've felt all your life. If you've been distracted or you've forgotten about it, check in again. It's still there for you. 
closer to you than your next breath. Now, you may think, yeah, hey, Steve, that's fine. That's good to know, and it's certainly comforting. But what if right now I'm in the middle of my own private valley of the shadow of death? How does this help me? And I think that part of the answer to that lies actually in the very next verse of the psalm. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's an odd verse. And I thought about it for a long time. When I was a kid and we learned the 23rd Psalm, we were taught that God is the shepherd and the shepherd is always good and sweet and comforting. I think there was a picture on my Sunday school wall of Jesus the Good Shepherd holding little baby lambs and the rod and the staff was the symbol of leading and comforting us in his shepherdly authority, which is great. Comfort is good, and we could all use a little more of it in 2020. But the word comfort includes more there than meets the eye. The Latin root of the word comfort is confortare, which means to give strength. It doesn't mean in the sense of cozy, which is what comfort sort of means for us today, sort of a nice big fluffy blanket. But that's not the only definition of comfort, and it's not really the biblical understanding either. There's a town in France, in Normandy, called Bayeux. You may have heard, heard of it or been there. And there's a fantastic cathedral there and a fantastic pipe organ, which I once had the incredible pleasure of playing. But important for our purposes is next to the cathedral is a museum where there's the Bayeux Tapestry. You may have seen it or seen pictures of it. It's a medieval tapestry created after the Norman Conquest and the Battle of Hastings in 1066. It was commissioned to commemorate and to depict that battle. And it's all woven together with fantastic threadwork and colors, and there are different panels that depict different scenes in the battle. It goes all the way around the room. It's absolutely amazing. And under each panel, there's an inscription in Latin telling you what's going on in the action. Well, one of the panels that I love the most shows a fellow named Bishop Odo. Bishop Odo, who was, of course, a bishop in the church, but was also apparently leading his forces into battle. He was the half-brother of William the Conqueror, it turns out. Anyway, it shows him with a spear jabbing one of his little foot-soldier knights in the backside, just like that, as all the knights scurry ahead of him into the battle. And underneath it, the Latin inscription, translated, says, This is Bishop Odo comforting his troops. And you can tell that when people in the museum get to that panel, because they burst out laughing. The words have absolutely nothing to do with what you're seeing. I mean, here's the bishop poking people with a sharp stick. That's supposed to be comforting. So back to God. When we're walking through that valley of the shadow of death, God's presence is, of course, deeply comforting. And that's as it should be. But there may also be a little bit of that sharp stick involved, right? It's as though in those moments God is saying to us, sometimes the only thing to do in the valley of the shadow of death is just not to sit down and stay there, is just to pick yourself up and get on with it, right? Just move along. Sometimes I think that's God's wisdom in that moment. It's like he's saying, I've been here all along. I'll be there with you, and I'll be there at the end. Let's get on. The wisdom of that moment, I think, is just that sharp little stick poking us along. It's that kind of comfort, not always the cozy kind. It's the kind that gives you strength. Now, of course, you might say, well, what if I don't make it? What if this valley of the shadow of death really is the one that does me in? But God says, well, so what? I was there in the beginning with you on this path. I'm here now. I'll be there and I'll meet you on the other side. Just keep going. Let's keep moving forward. Then my favorite part of the psalm. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil my cup runneth over. 
This is about God's abundance, extravagant, audacious abundance. Think of it, to prepare a table before you in the midst of your enemies. Now, maybe your enemies aren't wolves hiding in the bramble waiting to pick off a sheep. Maybe it's a medical test next week that's got you anxious. Maybe it's some relationship, some friction in a relationship that's got you down. Maybe it's your job security in the midst of these crazy times we've been living in. But in the middle of all that, God dares to prepare a feast for us. The psalm isn't saying, we'll have no fears because we'll get our lives organized, then figure it all out and get it all wrapped up in a pretty bow. Or, we don't worry about anything because we're spiritual people and therefore everything works out perfectly for us. This is saying, right here and right now, in the midst of your enemies, the worst, darkest things that you can imagine, God prepares a table of plenty. It's a dare. This is a dare. This is the cup that runneth over. That's my favorite phrase. My cup runneth over. I remember my grandmother used to say that. My cup runneth over. Probably she was exasperated. It's a great phrase. And of course, it tells us something great about God, about God's generosity and his pouring the cup to overflowing. But it also tells us, however, a few things about ourselves that we might think about. Because we need to ask, why is the cup overflowing? Well, maybe we've forgotten how to drink from it. Maybe we're so busy looking at our enemies and hypnotized by our fears. And meanwhile, God, the great bartender with a generous mean pour, is standing there pouring and pouring. And we're thinking, well, I'll take a sip later, after I get all my problems and worries figured out. And meanwhile, God keeps pouring. Maybe God is pouring and our cup runneth over because we keep showing up to the feast with a teeny tiny cup. Maybe your cup is too small. We all have that problem. If you show up to the feast of life with a shot glass or a thimble, then yeah, it's probably going to overflow. The cup that God pours is a vast cup and it never gets drained. And then the final verses. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Did you notice how that's worded? Goodness and mercy aren't out there saying, Yoo-hoo, over here, this is the way, follow us over here. No, they follow you. God is a God of freedom. God looks at your life and says, have at it. I created you to go where the nourishment is. So go find a good patch of green grass that feeds you and surely goodness and mercy will follow you and so will God huffing and puffing behind you just to make sure. But what if we stumble on the path? What if we wander off of it sometimes? I was thinking of that yesterday as I drove up from Los Angeles. I have a GPS device in my car. Everybody know what that is? I'm sure you do. Those are the things that tell you where to go and everybody has them in their phone now and has the satellite and reads out all the directions while you drive. I loved that thing. I loved them when they first came out. Partly I loved it because I have no sense of direction and I get lost all the time. But mostly I love my GPS device because there's a theology behind it, right? There you are and you've gone the wrong way and you've gone off the path and you're like the sheep that has wandered. And the lady's voice in the GPS says calmly, recalculating. She doesn't say, you bird brain, half a mile back I told you 50 times to hang a left. She just says, recalculating. I think that's how God is, the shepherd on the path. He doesn't say, you stupid servant, you, you dumb sheep, you should have known better than to make that wrong turn, blah, blah, blah. Wherever we find ourselves, God says, time to recalculate.
and time to move on down this path. It reminds me of the old Southern hymn, What Wondrous Love Is This? I've always thought that hymn sort of sums up my entire theology because it includes the wonderful words, and when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on, I'll sing and joyful be, when from death I'm free. I had an old choir director who once told me that the art of life is to sing all the way through your life and sing down through your life, sing down through your death, and then sing beyond your death. Just keep singing, right? Just move it on. God's there at the beginning and the middle, and he's on the other side as well. And because God is there, the feast is there. Just like the feast coming up this week, always there, but this one is spread for us in every moment. I commend to you Psalm 23. I think it's obnoxious to give advice in sermons, but I'm going to do it in closing. Has your meditation and prayer life been feeling a little clunky lately? Mine has. You might try this. Sit down this week and actually use the words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Say it five times and see what the result is. It preaches itself. The words stick with you and it begins to reform who we are. Let's pray together. God, thank you for all your faithfulness to us, for your leading us on this path all these years, from our birth through the receiving of our names, the formation of who we are, our steps on this path. Thank you for your presence whenever our steps have strayed and you're bringing us back to that path, both with gentle urging and occasionally maybe a sharp stick. Thank you for your promises which aren't just for tomorrow, but right here today, spread for us like a feast. Be with us, Lord God, through all our days. Help us to find your presence in every breath we draw, every word we speak. Help us to sing and sing down through life and through death and beyond death itself, and to trust your presence at all times. Amen.